Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week on the panel, we have Alan Weimar. Hello. And me, Sasha Wolf. And as usual, we have a special guest. And this week, it's Ben Kohlheim. And I'm at a home field advantage because I know exactly how to pronounce that name because it's German. Yes. <laughs> so, Ben, why don't you tell the listeners why you're here and what we're going to talk about today? Hi. So, uh, first, thanks for having me on the show today. Yes, as you already said, my name is uh, Ben. It's actually von Kohlheim. I, well, it's... Uh, Damn it. I, I, I um, <laughs> But that's something I'm used to, so that's fine. So, Kohlheim is also fine. I think it's quite unique already. So... Yeah, what about me? I'm based in Wuppertal, which is in Germany, which is on the western part of Germany. I said normally I'm based there. Right now I'm currently traveling through Europe together with my wife and my little two-year-old son. And right now I'm recording this from Florence in Italy. Nice. Yeah. So, so I haven't, hasn't, haven't had the time yet to, uh, to actually visit the city, but this is something for the next day. So... Yeah, I'm professionally, I'm a front-end developer working as a freelancer since six years now, but I am into software development. Like, well, like I can think of like, like finish, when I finished school, which is now almost, I think, 15 years ago or something. So pretty long time already. I'm professionally working. So doing my freelancing work using React and TypeScript, which is a little off topic if you, if you consider <laughs> that this is an Elixir podcast. But yeah, I came across Elixir, I think around 2017, saw a forum post where that like a lot of Rubyists were hanging out, and um, they. Uh, I always used Ruby for my side projects, and when I did some something, and I saw the syntax looked a little weird to me, and uh, looked into that and uh, found it interesting somehow doing the real real time things and uh, stuff like that. And yeah, and just started to learn it at, at the time, and uh, well, basically uh, did all my side projects, which what I did, and then starting afterwards. Yeah, I have a little blog, but like like it's a two blog post, uh, a thing where I occasionally write something. Um, I'm more into like uh, I wrote like two different kind of libraries for Elixir, which is uh, uh, the Live Motion library and um, Elixir the CVA library. Built like a few uh, side projects I already mentioned in in Elixir itself. Yeah, that's it for me so far. Yes, we kind of invited you for one of our blog posts, but I mean, you, you you also did a few other things in Elixir. So let, let's just see where the conversation brings us, right? And what we call <laughs> this episode afterwards. <laughs> let's see. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but I'm actually curious. I, I would like to start one step back because you basically said you're more of a front-end developer, uh, uh, yeah. React, and, but you also work with Elixir. So is this just like a side, was this just a side project thing or was this also for like your freelance work where you started to then look also into Elixir? Like, what, what is the story here? I'm curious, actually. So I never had the opportunity yet to do any professional work in Elixir, um, which is mm -hmm. too bad. I, I'd really prefer to do it some, at some point. But, well, I'm fully booked doing, like, freelancing stuff in Rack and Types, but I, always, I, I somehow was always on the front-end side, and this became popular. And so um, I, I did stick with it until now because just my projects are also going on and on. Anyway, uh, yeah, I did mainly all the things just for fun, like part-time outside, outside of it, just because I really, really was interested in it. And it's, it seemed really, really interesting to me. I like the architecture behind it and the ideas behind it. So, yeah, that's it. Why why I got into that, yeah. Cool. I mean, like, it also, like, the libraries you've written, like, they, they kind of show your, your front-end background. Yeah, yeah so, so exactly. <laughs> that, that's very true, yeah. So I mainly try to... To move the knowledge which I, what I had from the front end world and just to apply it also so that you can combine it because I think there's a lot of potential in combining stuff like on the live view, view side and combining stuff uh, from the front end from the knowledge from the front end. 
Yeah, yeah. I think we can we can get to that back later. Maybe for everyone who wants to already Google while while we're while okay. we're talking, uh, it's the libraries are called X C underscore C V A and Live underscore Motion, and they're both both related to components and and live view and front end work. So, yeah, if somebody wants to already Google. I think we're gonna revisit that back later. But yeah, something why kind of what prompted all of this? You we invite we inviting you was a blog post you wrote on on, the, on like one of the two blog posts, I guess, <laughs> on your website um, about <laughs> yeah. remote development with Elixir. Exactly, and yeah. maybe you can give just our listeners a super short definition of what that actually means. Yeah, of course. So, I mean, the basic idea of, of remote development or cloud development environments or whatever, how you want to call it exactly, but um, it is like that you take your source code, which lives in your repository, and uh, that you basically remove, uh, basically move this into the cloud. So put this on a different machine inside of the cloud, run it inside the cloud on a different machine, and connect to this code via your own IDE. So this, for example, the main supported one is always Visual Studio Code, which uh, you can either run in the browser so that you can directly run Visual Code in the browser or run it locally and connect to your code, which is executed on a different machine. So I think the main thing to say what cloud development is actually not is that it's not like something like you could imagine, like a remote desktop or Citrix-style environment. So this is not what the cloud development is, is, is about, about. So you do not get like a full remote desktop where you uh, have your mouse and every keystroke basically mirrored onto a different machine. You do just connect via SSH, via your local code editor via SSH to a remote machine, meaning that you can run your code wherever you want, actually. So, and whatever device you want, even if it's like a low power device or something. Um, so to summarize, you could probably say it's like kind of like a Docker container you connect to to do development work. Would that be like? It is a, exactly. It is yeah. exactly like 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 the providers work. So like the popular providers work. It's always a Docker container you connect to. I think it also makes a lot of sense to be honest. Uh, like we already have this tool for like having reproducible environments, so why not use it for this particular use case? Yeah, exactly. So it's basically using the CI part but bringing it to the development side of it and not only to like the building side um, mm -hmm. so that's it yeah yeah, like my only experience in that particular front has been like dev containers for like Visual Studio Code, mm -hmm. which never quite worked for me because I have an M1 MacBook and then it was always a hassle of getting this thing to run. <laughs> so uh, maybe it's better now. Like I, ha I haven't tried in a while. I'm still very much in the camp of I have my system set up in a certain way. Like I enjoy it. I have my dot files backed up to a place and th that is how, how I prefer it. How, like, is it, I know, let me, let me phrase it differently. So is this like now your new development modus operandi? Like, is this how you tend to now build software, like with this remote development, maybe also for React and TypeScript and now also for Elixir? Or is it still something you've only played with because there are things? So not a hundred percent. So I, I found it interesting and I wanted to get into the idea of how it works and uh, if, if it could, um, like, if it could be beneficial, even especially when I'm traveling right now and just have a little MacBook Air. I mean, it's an M1. Um, it's quite. Mm -hmm. I think the M1 is quite powerful or quite capable of running everything locally. But still, battery life uh, could be could be an issue. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to, to to give it a try. So you mentioned dev containers, right? So the, I think the dev containers config file is what GitHub Codespaces uses um, for it. There are different kind of uh, cloud providers out there. So I basically went always with uh, with Gitpod. I never 
tried GitHub Codespaces yet because I think previously it wasn't free and I wanted just wanted to to invest too much money into it and just look, just looking how it works. I mean, they have I think right now they have already also a free tier which is more or less the same like the Gitpod one. But anyway, I tried just tried out Gitpod and I was very skeptical at first if this is uh, especially what you mentioned that you said okay you you have your dot files locally you have all your environment you have all your setup which you're used to on your machine and mm-hmm. it's quite hard to say goodbye to that right so because you know how everything works and you put so much work into it um, and this is i would say it's only half the case if uh, that you have to give up your local development environment because you actually use quite a lot of it also when developing remotely as i said you are basically sshing into a docker container and have your registry code still running locally so you still can have all your extensions set up have all um, basically all your dot files even you can even include your dot files and you can point uh, i think on Gitpod you can point it to a repository where dot files are hosted and they will be automatically mounted inside the docker container so oh, you can make even use of that even so if you all have your, your own scripts and things um, this is also what i do there when developing on it so yeah so as i said i was really skeptical about it i wanted to give it a try looked into how you could get things up and running using elixir and they have some kind of base images which provides like a ton of different languages to get you up and running basically very quick um they also have like a specific elixir image but it comes with 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 a drawback that it's just installing elixir from the apt sources and this is always like a quite dated version i don't know exactly what it, what it is but it's some three or four versions back uh, than what the current version is and then basically to get get it set up um decided to give it a try and play around a little with it and it took quite a while to get used to it and uh, how to to get it up and running but after i did set up it properly i think it's it's a viable choice to do development work on this and as so i do not like like in the world i, I, do, I do not use it for my everyday work so for for my everyday tasks but i use it for every for all the open source work i do so this is i think one of the main benefits of the cloud development that it also it makes things easy when you have an open source project you could could just put like let's say you could just put a button on on your repository you click the button and then you have a full working development environment just set up in the browser so if somebody else wants to contribute to your project this makes it very easy for them to contribute because they do not have to go over a huge readme file install an enormous amount of dependencies for example but just can get up them running very quickly and do their contributions yeah that makes a lot of sense especially when doubly so i would assume for like if you look for something like github code spaces which probably integrates just very nicely with, with github repositories just by the nature yeah. of them being built by the same company not doing any promotion here just like i would expect that to be very seamless i gotta say though like the Gitpod website like it's just it looks very cozy i really like it <laughs> <laughs> I just said, well, all right. Um, is there anything where you like you felt when you like kind of tried it out, um, which gave you more of an impression of okay, this is not working as nicely as I thought it would be, or vice versa, right? Where, where, where you maybe expected, oh, this is this is gonna suck, and then it didn't. I mean, for me, like I just said, I have all my dot file settings, and so on and so forth. So if those already can be mounted, that I think in of it itself already brings a lot of value. They're super messy. I would have to clean that up, but. <laughs> <laughs> in general, right? Like, what 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 was your maybe your expectation, and what what was not so great, and what was maybe surprisingly um, smooth sailing? So my expectation was that to get it up 
and running a little that it would be a little easier um in especially regarding the docker container get the docker image up and running but this i don't have to i, I cannot like blame gitport for this or docker itself it's just i would say a lack of my knowledge on, on docker because i'm and never used it mm-hmm. that much. Um, I know, I mean, how to run the commands uh, and a few commands of that uh, to to get the environment up and running. So basically installing like Elixir, installing ASDF uh, for the version, version manager. But first challenge was actually like installing a Postgres database into it because I, I'm running on Mac and I'm using just using the, the Postgres uh, app, app for this. And so I had to look mm-hmm. up all the commands to actually install it and get it up and running. Um, the nice thing here was that um, that Gitpod itself has a Docker file for the for the Postgres image, but this was also like a, I think it was Postgres ten or something, and so but I just was able to basically copy and paste and adapt adapt uh, this code um, so that it would work here. Um, so this was a little little more work to do, but right up from then the container came up quite quickly and it, it, it was working already. So you could then also, in the, for example, on Gitpod you have a configuration file where you can define all the tasks for the app to, to build. So let's say the part of the automation process or getting um, things up and running here is that you say, okay, you want to get your mixed dependencies to installed, and then you would say, please, when starting up the container, run a command mixed steps get and mixed steps compile, so that, and then you run the Phoenix server, for example. And, and this is then done directly when starting up the container. So you have everything up and running. So you do not have to enter any command manually afterwards. This was quite a nice experience. And then you can also say, okay, for this specific project, which is quite nice, I want to have these extensions available. So imagine you have a, have a project where, which you, you are building with a team. And you know, for this specific project, there are a handful of uh, Visual Studio Code extensions, which are quite valuable for this specific project. And then you can define it and it would, would automatically install them when starting up the container and merge this one with your local configuration extensions you want to have in any project. So this is something which is really nice on this one. Yeah, that, that sounds really useful. From what you've laid out, I, I'm wondering like if this maybe also the kind of a next natural step uh, from some other things because I, I'm personally a big fan of like a version version manager like ASDF, you know, which is yeah. kind of achieving something similar, I guess, to a certain degree while also being very local. I still have like in a repository potentially a file which specifies okay for this particular project I want to use this and that version blah 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 and there's all like the configuration approaches to like configure your editor slightly different for each different repository so this this feels like a like a like the next next step evolution let's say like in in um, reproducible development environments yes maybe so I wouldn't say it's it's uh, this or that so because uh, in the container I'm actually using ASDF as as the version manager itself itself because, as I said, uh, the normal image, uh, if you try to install Elixir from APT, you would get an older version. And um, I'm installing ASDF inside the Docker container, for example, in my image. And then it would you could just set an environment variable on, on the image, or, or you could also say um, you would use uh, the tool versions file of ASDF so that it automatically installs then the correct version of it, um, of, of Elixir. And for example, Node.js, if you want. It makes sense. It makes sense. Okay. Um, since you're more of like a front end and React and TypeScript person yourself, uh, would you say that like the develop? I would expect that the experience for like something like remote containers is just a little bit more better for like more popular technologies like TypeScript. Um, it definitely has a better support because it has a lot more surprised. people requesting it. Is more people requesting it? 
But still, if you if you if you know Docker and how to how to create a Docker image and install basically all all the things you you need to get uh, Erlang and Elixir, and uh, then it's only just a couple of lines of code to to, to get out get it up and running. But definitely, I mean, the out of the box support could be better. There's one thing. I mean, this is a very specific thing uh, to mention. I don't know if anybody of you uh, ran into this, but um, I'm happy user also of the Elixir LS extension of Visual Studio Code, like for auto completion, and it always has an issue. Um, and there's an open GitHub issue. I don't know if this is going to be solved any time or if this is even solvable. But um, basically, whenever so the Elixir LS extension is compiled using a specific version of Erlang. And, and Elixir. And when you run it locally in your product, you probably have a different version than uh, the one the language server has been compiled with. And then this results in the issue that uh, if you, for example, if you um, have, have a module using the use macro, then take a live view. You, you just put at the top, you put the use statement with uh, use live view, and then you try to call the function assign or assign new something. Uh, this wouldn't result in any auto-completion most of the time. And this is something where the, the Gitpod environment or the cloud development environment in general comes in pretty handy because I do compile the Elixir LS extension directly with the version installed in the in the in the Docker container itself. So you always will get the proper auto-completion even if you even if you run different versions of, of Elixir and on different projects. Ah, oh, that makes sense. Okay. So locally for my development, I, I even have locally like a script in my doc file. So whenever I switch between two different Elixir projects which use different versions, I just quickly run a bash script which will then recompile the Elixir language server to be compliant mm-hmm. with the current conversion. That's kind of neat, but also a bit hacky. <laughs> it, it, it is, but but still, there's no 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 workaround yet for it. So at least I'm not, not I am aware of. If anybody knows an easier way, please tell me. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I gotta say, like I, I think like the work of Elixir LS team, like it's amazing that like people are working on this. Yeah. For me personally, there's always been a, a bit of like a finicky experience, like sometimes it unexpectedly doesn't work, and you don't really know why. And never never bother to really dig deep into that. So if you're curious yeah. to hear a bit more about like how some, of these, <laughs> some of the the issues I would expect a lot of people are experiencing where they come from and how what the what the root causes. Um, but I'm actually curious, Alan, have you done any remote development like yet yeah, has been laid out? Not like this. No, usually it's I have a Slack call or Google Meet call and they're sharing a screen and I'm screaming at them. No, 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 not like that. Do it like this. Sadly, I, I'm not though. That's something I I want to take a to take a look at but i i I don't know i just i'm have skepticism right i think it's i like the fact that you can have like a reproducible environment you can share it with people they can get everything going it's basically like docker container but then they don't run on their on their on their computer i actually was doing some freelance work on one of these cdes these cloud editors i forgot the name of it quite a few years ago it's all written in java or something like that. I forgot what the heck it was. It's one of the free open ones that they had. I mean, I, I like the idea, but I don't know. I, I think I need to try it before I can say it. It's just too weird for me. I like just doing everything on the machine. Like Sasha was saying, ASDF just works and it's just I'm just an old school kind of person like that, I guess. Yeah, I get it. So I think it's probably that you have actually to try to to actually experience if it's something probably, for you, yeah. if it's good. And I think the most benefit, so the biggest benefit or largest benefit out of it, uh, definitely get teams working on so like where teams where you have a team multiple persons working on a single project and um, where constantly like 
like people are onboarding or offboarding uh, we have uh, this one and they this is a huge time saver i'd say but i, I can't be left to wonder like i, I get what you're saying there and that may especially uh, maybe in more volatile environments i can definitely see the um the appeal and also like as we mentioned earlier like open source development like ha having just something ready-made where contributors can can jump in easily i definitely can see the appeal there but i'm left wondering if there is maybe i'm getting old and grumpy but, <laughs> but <laughs> I, i can't I can't shake the feeling that this is like taking it a step too far, you know, where I'm, where I mean, it's, they then still have to go over the internet. So like if I have that internet connection, yeah, then screw me, I guess, right? And I do feel like there is a like a compromise where you can say, okay, we have reproducible development environments and they're easy to set up, built on some kind of standard, for example, Docker or something like that, right? And it's still a matter of, okay, I have to set up Docker on your machine, okay, but I mean, at, at this point, um, that is that is a given, I feel, especially in backend engineering, that, that you set up Docker and then you maybe have some kind of of specification which kind of goes for the same the same idea and makes it easy to start out things but yeah again, yet again i mean we have dev containers here here at my current employer and some of our old um, services just don't work for me because my m1 macbook is like nah nah so i guess you never can quite eliminate that particular area of fiction yeah Well, that is something what you mentioned. Uh, this, uh, what uh, actually these cloud development uh, environments try to solve. The thing that something doesn't work on your machine. And this, yeah, I uh, it, yeah. Like I said, maybe I'm getting old and cranky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I mean, if you have a proper container set up, and like then this is definitely to say it is the end of uh, the statement works on my machine because if it works yeah, true. on one thing. One nice thing, for example, which Gitport also has is a thing called pre-builds, which basically um, you could think of this, uh, for example, you build a feature and then you create a pull request for it. Mm -hmm. And then you created the pull request and then automatically there's a bot on, uh, inside of it, which uh, then picks up the pull request and automatically uh, creates um, a dev environment for that so that you can afterwards, uh, that you afterwards have a button there, open up this pull request and then you just get the full pull request up and running in your browser in your browser you can test it out you can see everything what's going on uh, test if uh, there's anything any issue here or, or not because i mean especially for myself when i do i'm doing pull request previews also in my freelance work um i most almost all the time i check out the pull request i have to uh, call um, i mean on the TypeScript thing, I have to call you on install, wait for the packages to be fetched and then check everything, if everything is working. And this is basically cut off if you if you're using um, a cloud development environment you do not even have to wait for the build to finish because the build already has finished before um, when the pull request has been created so you just jump in directly in, into it yeah okay I, i can definitely see that i guess at the end of the day it, it always depends on your particular circumstances and just because there are cloud development environments doesn't mean that everybody now starts to replace their local development environments with, with them right i mean they can definitely i can i can see what you just laid out as like a like a helpful thing to still have even if you still prefer your local development environment so exactly yeah. so you could even even decide okay today um this is also something i do so today i'm working locally on my machine because it's uh, i had it had it open or it's just set up right right for me right now and on another day i would just open up the same repository you know, in a cloud development environment or if i'm Yeah, it's uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so it's not you have to you do not have to opt in fully because it's in essence it's just one or two configuration files added to a repository and nothing more so you could still run it locally. Yeah, that makes sense.
Okay, so you said earlier that you also basically all of your open source development now happens through through these kind of um, mm -hmm. development environments. Um, so, what kind of type of open source development do you make? So, that yeah, was a smooth segue, wasn't it? Yeah, it was <laughs> great. <laughs> yeah, um, so I did some all my open source development actually is around Elixir because I'm doing this out of work. So not mm -hmm. during my work hours and I want to do something which I, I really enjoy and I also want to learn. So I always want to, to learn new stuff and that's is happening mostly by doing things, especially when, especially by writing libraries and stuff like that. So I've wrote a few things. I mean, a few, when I got started with Elixir, the first one, which re really, really bugged me, uh, which was uh, a nice thing which you have when running a TypeScript project is that whenever you open up your dependency file, like the package JSON, it would automatically recommend you the latest version of the package, which, which is available. So, and I thought, okay, I could bring this into, into Elixir or using the mix uh, in the mix. EXX file. So I built in a, a little extension for Visual Studio Code, which is called hex.pm IntelliSense, which automatically gives you the latest version when you hit the autocomplete within the mix.exx file. Exactly. So that you do not have to, to call a mix info in, in, your, in your terminal or go to the hex web page to see what the latest version of the package is. So this is one which I created a few years ago, which was my first one. And well, lately I was playing around with mainly like animations, which I think it is a thing which is a bit lacking on, on Phoenix Live View. So the animation side, I mean, got better with the JS commands and um, supporting the transition classes, for example, from Tailwind. So this got way easier to do transitions and animations, but not for like complex animations or even spring animations or something like that. This is something which is quite popular in the, in the TypeScript world, uh, in the React world, and there are a few libraries which are certainly, well, got inspired from and this is uh, called live underscore motion which is an animation library for for live view it is kind of experimental so it's not running 100 percent smooth yet um i invest some some of my time uh, into it and um, when i just uh, want to work on this um so it is a bit experimental but the api is quite nice if you look at it uh, for the first time I, it's, it's also an example as a deployed example and it's actually quite fun to play around with it <laughs> i'm just yeah. doing it while we're speaking because you can change the numbers and it goes Wee! Yeah, exactly yeah <laughs> yeah so um this is something i looked into but so this is also where my front end like front experience comes through so i try to or where I see some potential, you can definitely bring things from the front-end world also to this live view thing and uh, bridge this gap for the fully for the, the things which should fully run on the on the browser on the server, which are actually animations. So, but there is right now no way to declare declaratively and define them on on the server. So this is what I was trying to solve. And um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's really cool. It's also, um, I'm not sure when that was a while ago, we had someone on the show who also had more of a front-end um, background. And back then we already said that uh, the Elixir community, especially now with live view, getting as much traction and as much attention and as much um, spotlight as it does, that there are probably a lot of things we can learn from the front-end community because they, well, they may have had to work with some of those things for quite a while. <laughs> So why yeah. not benefit from 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 the gained knowledge there? And this is like this is exactly the kind of things I, I, I was thinking of back then when we were talking about that. So it's really really cool to see that. It kind of also reminds me of when we had man. Why, why am I losing? I mean, it's too late over here. But our last guest last week, he he said, remember they they made this very very fast and efficient Erlang yeah, yeah, web yeah. server. 
right? And they learned Jaws, from Elixir. I think Jaws, right? Jaws or something, yeah. Yeah. So that was also very interesting. It's like everybody yeah. has to learn from other... We're all learning from other communities, right? I think without Ruby, we wouldn't have a lot of the features of Mix, etc. and everything else. Even like Rust, right? Since Sasha missed me talking about Rust. You know that the team <laughs> that built Bundler also built Cargo for Rust? No, not aware. No. Yeah, that's pretty crazy, right? I mean, and Cargo for Rust is pretty decent. Like Bundler is not bad, but I think it's better. And that's usually what happens when you get to rebuild something. And another thing is that you can make it better than what you know it was the last time. Right. Um, I'm, I'm actually curious though, like I'm, this is a bit, maybe a bit of a controversial question then, but there are people, and I've, I've heard people say that basically also about live view is like the selling point. There's no JavaScript. You have to, don't have to do JavaScript. <laughs> so what is your perspective on that as somebody who basically does TypeScript and JavaScript for a living, right? I mean, I can get the point why, why it's a good selling point actually, because I mean, if I imagine myself just going into, into development right now and going into web development, mm -hmm. And I have to, I mean, like every, absolutely every tutorial on the web just recommends your use JavaScript. You, you get straight thrown into JavaScript. And then I think you're, you're, you're getting pretty fast. You're getting exhausted because you just have so many moving things going on there. You have like a ton of different package, uh, a ton of different bundlers. Uh, or, or let's say package Ooh, boy, managers yes. you, you have and there are so many things i mean there are libraries for like like 10 libraries for every problem and every problem uh, they are solving basically the same problem in a slightly different way i mean it is kind of so it's a double-edged sword as uh, i'd say it's uh, there's something which is actually good by it because libraries learn from each other they they get better but still you have to pick something of, of them if you're a developer and trying to get things done and if you're presented with like like 10 different choices, at least I'm speaking for me, it is always hard. I want to pick the best one. I want to pick the one which resonates the best with me or which has a nice a nice API. And I'm pretty fast exhausted if I have to look up 10 different repositories just to solve a single problem, right? And you end up researching for like one or two hours instead of just picking one and uh, solve the problem, right? Um, so in regards to this, I can get the point um, that you do not need to write any JavaScript that this is a good selling point. But still, I think the main value here from or the main selling point is that everything lives actually on the server so that you only have a single code base which you, mm -hmm. which you need to manage and that reduces like a lot of mental overhead you would have for the classic i mean most of the time it's recommended to have like a backend so you have a separate backend or use some some serverless uh, cloud functions or something for your backend or use something like firebase or superbase and then have a single page application for it but most of the time i mean if you think or look at most of the web applications itself they most of them are they are just mainly crud things or so yes, and yes. they do not really have to 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 be a single page application just for the sake of being a single page application so and this is what what makes live view and so so attractive and so good because you only have a single like a single source of truth of your code and um, have way less mental overhead and if you need to to get some more interactivity which needs to really run on the client then you still can go for any JavaScript thing you like and can add it. So I think it is actually absolutely the best of two worlds because as a React dev, I can easily add a part. Uh, so let, let's take a rich text editor, for example. I can easily add a rich text editor using any, using the, one of the popular React-based uh, libraries for it or JavaScript-based li libraries, but still have the full the main, the main part of the state living on the server and have like the server-rendered application and just 
sprinkle the JS where I really need it. Makes you also think about it more where you really need that interactivity. Yeah, but that actually fits quite well into what my perspective on those things. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to now, I'm going to now just share what I've been thinking because I'm, I'm also not quite in the area of, oh, yeah, no more JavaScript anywhere. Hooray. Uh, because I mean, JavaScript has, is it's there for a reason, but I'm also of the opinion that JavaScript in the past few years, it tends to be overused like on, on some things, because as you just said, like some, most applications boil down to CRUD. And like, do I really need a full-fledged single-page application for a CRUD thing? Like it, it's just, it, it's a lot of complexity for something which you could make the argument is maybe not necessary. Not every time. Sometimes it is. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to build something like Google Docs just in a server rendered scenario that just it sounds like a bad idea but i don't know like my pizza ordering website <laughs> do i really yeah. need like a full-blown single page application for that you know so i feel like life is like bridging the gap there from like how what we had and if like a kind of um static html then the next step will be something like um, jquery with ajax so on and so forth like right like what we had there and then at the other end of the spectrum we have like full-blown uh, single page applications but in between there is now this this thing which which makes like certain types of tasks just simpler less complexity less things less moving parts you need to understand because if you actually need some kind of, of back-end work some kind of database which probably you need for most useful business applications then you can't get around around of having a backend and having only one code base is in terms of complexity often often not always preferable so yeah yeah absolutely i totally agree and you even see like like the trend that there is an ongoing trend also in the in the front end or in the rec community to, yeah. to go back to the server <clears throat> so render more on the server get more things done already on the server so you do not so that you have to make less web Back requests uh, um, mm-hmm. so there is definitely a trend going back to that um, yeah. yeah i've been observing that as well and i mean I, I think a lot of the frustration and at least personally for me has come from as you said earlier how fast the javascript ecosystem is moving because when i actually did have scenarios where i came back to an old elixir app maybe that hasn't been updated in a year but it's running along fine and now i want to do some changes so i try to get it running locally and then it's like it's always always it was javascript and like with, with package updates which were giving me has <laughs> it's like always like with elixir part maybe oh okay this increased a few versions yeah i can update it okay maybe i need to do a small few small changes yeah no big hassle okay let's maybe also update the packages for my for the javascript part like, and it wasn't Absolutely. an issue every time, but if, if there was an issue, it was often there. <laughs> so I think that is like where a lot of frustration has been born. Okay. Yeah. Anything else you would like to pitch? You would like to mention, Ben? You would like to let our listeners know? Maybe, yeah. Library I was like working lately on. Um, it's another one which is also has a large inspiration from the JavaScript ecosystem. This is ex underscore CVA. And it's mainly just a port of uh, a library in the JavaScript world, which is just called CVA. And it really resonated from the idea with my, with my thinking. And it was, it's basically around, I mean, in essence, it is, it is just a function which concatenates classes based on some, some, some conditions on, or some props in a rec component, for example. So you would, you would give it, like, let's, for, for example, take a button of it. Um, and you have a button and you have like a primary variant of it and you have a secondary variant of it. So primary has a primary color and the other one has like, um, has, has a different color. 
And uh, then you also have like a simple, like, like a variant, for example, which is called medium, like the size. So medium size, large size, small size. That's, and this is actually a function to it. So which automatically adds the proper types to, to your rec components then. So uh, concatenates, concatenates uh, the classes accordingly, depending on the variants you, you pass into it. So let's say you have a primary button on the size small, you will get a color button in a small size of it. So you have the correct class supplied. And this one, I used it a lot in my, uh, my front end projects and I really like it. And I, I thought about that this could be easily ported also to, um, to Elixir. As I mean, if you look at the code base, it's just, I think it's around 100, 100 lines of code or something. It's pretty small. And then I thought this could be easily ported to Elixir as well. I tried it initially by using, just using a function of it and then really got, got into more of it and, and thought, okay, there's the, the atom macro, like the attribute macro, macro from when defining life view components. And I thought, okay, I could dig into meta programming a bit and try to mm-hmm. create mm-hmm. my own macro for variants um, so that you can define variants more declaratively. And this is what I did in this library. I'm using it on my, pro- my projects. Um, I really like it so far. And uh, uh, yeah, check it out if, you, if you're interested on that one. I think that's really, that's really interesting. It, it goes exactly with the same, same kind of fashion I mentioned earlier, of the, like getting inspired by, by other ecosystems and the things that are happening yeah. on there. It's like it, really cool. I'm still, uh, I still have to admit that I haven't really digged into the whole c- component movement in Phoenix. Sue me. Okay, it's just didn't really have an opportunity yet. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's really, really cool to see what people are coming up there. And I think like even the latest Phoenix version is now viewless. So yes, they removed it. So they, they, yeah. if you generate a new one, uh, you won't get any any view folder anymore. So it's just just components everywhere. Yeah, it's it's so really it's really good, really cool to see like oh, where we are moving there. And I mean, you you can't deny that a lot of those developments have been strongly inspired by things from the mobile from the front end of mobile. Sorry, uh, absolutely. absolutely. So yeah, so. I think uh, Chris McCord recently, uh, it's a couple of weeks now, posted a, a blog post on I think on the Fly IO blog. He posted a love letter to React. So where he clearly oh, states okay. that he got inspired by the React ecosystem um, on designing the components uh, things. Yeah. It's a nice read, definitely. It also feels like a natural evolution, considering what we are doing in live view, like like the, the components and and live view. That that seems like a match made in heaven. Yeah, yeah, really cool. Alan, do you have anything like to add, like to ask? No, actually, um, I mean, now that you're traveling, right? Do you find that if you're using that kind of remote environment, it makes things easier because you can kind of spin it down, spin it back up. You don't need to carry some like beefy laptop with you. I mean, you can basically take maybe a Chromebook or something even lighter. I mean, nowadays, MacBooks are really light anyways, right? But I'm just thinking, like, do you think it actually helps with your traveling around the world? So it definitely helps uh, to, to use, like, a, a thinner book. So as I said, I'm just using a MacBook Air. Previous year, I, I used to use, like, a like a 15-inch MacBook, which is uh, quite quite a lot of heavier. I mean, now nowadays that you have these new M1 or now M2 MacBooks, if you think of this one, um, that these are so powerful by being so battery efficient. Well, I've, I honestly think for most of the development work you do, you can get away with some of these small laptops. So in this, this is not anymore the full setting point, I'd say, but definitely battery life. Battery life is definitely increased if you, for, for example, another example, if you 
if you have like multiple projects running sim simultaneously, then this is also a huge saver on uh, on battery life first and on on the performance side because each of your environments gets its full processor, its own RAM, its own disk space. Basically, everything is isolated between um, between them, so you can run like ten different projects without affecting your your, your machine RAM. Okay. Yeah, I was just thinking about because I got I probably do some traveling soon, so it's always kind of wondering like what gear should I bring? Now I got my Steam Deck, so now I got Steam Deck, iPad, laptop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, Alan doesn't stop talking about a Steam Deck. It's true. Yeah, I was I was just playing it before the the show. You know, I barely have a chance to play it these days anymore. Yeah, I even tried like while traveling. I tried first the first time I tried game streaming. Um, so sometimes I got a little bored and I tried. Okay, give it give, give GeForce now a try. And I tried streaming games and it, it works pretty well. I was pretty impressed by it. So I thought I always thought, okay, that this is never going to work properly. Yeah, that, that Logitech has a similar thing, but yeah, they run the, the GeForce, I think, on it. And uh, I heard that Android games are not very good on it, but somehow GeForce is really good. I guess it's because really it's, you know, like they run everything on the cloud, right? So yeah. it just runs easier. Okay, unless there's anything we would like to be adding, uh, how can people reach you if they have follow-up questions, Ben? So yeah, I'm mainly active on Twitter. It's uh, The Twitter handle is BenVP underscore, so underscore at the last. And of course, also via email, this is uh, hi at benvp.co so it's something where you could re reach me if you have a question or just want to say hello nice then let's get to the to the more random part of a podcast <laughs> picks alan do you have any pick stars this week yeah maybe i'm a little bit late to the party but i just started playing uh doom 2016 and uh been super addicted to that i saw sasha you also have this game I have I never finished it because yeah, I'm like, trying to what, finish what, it. Almost it's, done. Yeah, it's very intense and it like what it tries to do is is it, it does very well like with like yeah. action heavy shooter, but yeah. it has no pacing at all. Like it's just action, 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 action. All <laughs> that exhausting oh, really? after a while. Oh really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> For me, I just get it like the, the one thing that annoys me is like you have to think a lot and it's the, the maps are not linear. So that takes me a while. Like I gave up and like started looking at walkthroughs to try to figure out how to move the next part. So that was the part that annoys me otherwise. Uh, yeah. And also some of the rune challenges are really difficult. But other than that, like I, I'm loving it. And yeah, okay, I die sometimes, but I'm also playing on the easiest level. <laughs> <laughs> So maybe you play on the hard level. I don't know, but yeah, it's 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 great. It's a for somebody who's a big fan of FPS games, uh, I quite like it a lot. So I'm looking forward to run, playing Eternal after this. Nice. Anything else for my picks? Yeah, I can't just pick one. I got to pick more. Come on, yes. I, I got 161 games coming in. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's 161 podcast recordings right there. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. I'm, I I have two picks for this week. One is very straightforward. And it's Gleam. I just want to, want to pick Gleam. I want to do a Gleam shout out again because they actually now have Elixir compilation. Like you can basically have a Gleam project with Elixir code in there. And yeah, it, it will install like the mixed toolchain. It's kind of akin to what Elixir does with Erlang, right? like how you can have Erlang in an Elixir project and it can manage that or like all the dependencies. And it's kind of the same with Gleam now. Like it can manage Elixir files and Elixir dependencies. Um, I'm not sure where I exactly read that or if, if that popped into my own head, but uh, I saw of a sentence which was like gleam is getting dangerously usable now <laughs> so it's 
we are at work now really considering to put it in production for some parts of our modular modular elixir app and uh, where we actually say okay we can really benefit from like a more statically typed language here so i would just I mean, we had Louis on the show a few times, but I just have to do it again. Like, say, maybe check out Gleam. It's really getting getting to a point where you can arguably put it in production without without being concerned about this. So uh, that's my, that's my pick. Just want to do this shout out again. And my other pick is I'm gonna do like one weird indie pick, which is a game called Domekeeper. And it's actually been built by a German couple. Like it's just the, the guy and, 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 and his, his wife, I think, they're married. And they built this little game where you, it's like where you have like this little dome and, and it has this cycle. But like you go into underground and dig, like dig out resources, so on and so forth. And then every, like every X seconds, there's like a wave of enemies. So you kind of have to go back up. But of course, grabbing all these resources makes you slow. So you kind of have to manage time really well. And it's like this this uh, roguelike scenario where like you start one run again and then you can do maybe little modifications about like getting different starting gear for your dome and so on. And it's I don't know like it's it's one of these games where like oh, come on come on just just one more run right like one more. <laughs> and then it's one a.m. and you're like damn it's tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> so dome keeper uh, maybe check that out. It's also not very expensive. I don't know from the top of my head, but it's under 20 bucks. And there was another video game pick. Ah, right. Um, another video game pick I'm doing is no, not indie. It's very mainstream, but I've just recently got the new Mario Strikers football game. And I've played this thing to death on the GameCube back then. Like I, I loved it and I loved every second of this. And the new game is actually surprisingly deep like I, I was surprised by, by the level of little interactions you can be doing like how timing plays a role in the different actions for example if you pass and then shoot just at the right time like it gets a stronger shot and like all of those little little details you can actually put into action which the old gamecube game didn't have which i'm not saying is bad but like i was surprised by, by the level of, of potential skill you can kind of people can kind of get in this game so i'm just played a few times now but i'm already already loving it quite a bit and if you're like looking for like arcade football action or arcade soccer action then then this game is potentially worth worth a look so mario strikers the new battle football uh, those are my picks for this week ben do you have picks for us Yes, I also brought uh, actually brought three picks. Um, so first up, um, real quick to the topic um, of cloud development environments. Um, I uh, created a, a Gitpod starter template, um, basically uh, to, um, in relation to uh, the blog post. You can check it out. It's uh, feel free to use it. Um, so basically, everything I talked about, uh, you can you can see on this uh, this template. So um, that's the first pick for me. A second pick is uh, actually one of the books which. Well, I really, really learned a lot of in regards to meta programming. Um, that's uh, the meta programming Elixir book by Chris McCourt. Um, it is even if it's uh, if it's a few years old now, it's really, really concise, and the examples are very good if you if you look to go into meta programming itself. Um, so I would even argue it's it's also fine if you do not if you just want to learn some meta programming, um, even if you're not like using elixir or something so it's it's really i mean it's really really understandable and uh, the uh, examples are very good so definitely give this a read um if you want to learn something about meta programming plus one on that i've also picked it a few times in the past and it's also a surprisingly short read which i think is yeah. really nice absolutely yeah last one also oh, we, we all brought games so i also brought brought a game here nice um <laughs> so my game which i bring is uh, is tunic this is uh, something i discovered i think when uh, when just browsing uh, or when i subscribed to the xbox game pass i think so um tunic is um 
a game which looks quite cute. It's like you have, it is based on the isometric perspective. So you look from the top um, onto your character. It's a little uh, 3D um, uh, kind of thing where it looks a little bit like Zelda. So it has definitely been inspired by Zelda. And you um, control like a cute little fox, um, uh, which looks cute, but it is uh, pretty hard actually, the game. So it's a Souls-like game. Um, and it has like a lot, a lot of little secrets inside of it so there are actually so many secrets inside of that in the game that there are even full communities outside of the game trying to to solve uh, like the like the final puzzle which is that so um it is a, a re- really really interesting game and it's 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 also nice if you just have like a few minutes left to play a little so um yeah definitely recommend this one nice thank you it was a pleasure having you ben thank you it was a pleasure being here yeah And I hope you all also enjoyed listening to our rambling. I guess we're going to call this episode something like Remote Development and Front-End Inspirations in Elixir. (laughs) (laughs) Something like that. (laughs) Okay. So I hope you all enjoyed listening to this and tune in next time when we have another episode of Elixir Mix. Bye. Bye.